Well, good morning, ladies. Welcome to EQ. Bright and early. Thank you for being here. Uh, everybody should have received a packet, which is your outline for today. Uh, it's on the table out there, as well as the God's Transformation of Man worksheet. Uh, so if you haven't gotten that, please go ahead and grab that. And I am going to open our time together in prayer. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day that you've given to us. It is undeserved and it is a gift, a kind, generous gift from you. And Lord, we especially thank you for the ability to be together this morning in this way, for this purpose, to further be equipped to grow in our love for you, our usefulness for you. And Lord, we pray that you would stay true to your nature, to your care, to your love for your people, your faithfulness, that you love to build your people up you love to mature your people you love to to sanctify your people and we pray that that would take place uh being here this morning early on a saturday comes with sacrifice time away from families time away from responsibilities time away from rest and lord i pray that that sacrifice would prove faithful uh or fruitful rather in uh, in the lives of these women as we um look to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and and from that our love of you and we ask these things in jesus name amen all right well we're going to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning working through our our biblical literacy so would love to just hear if anybody can recall if i wanted to uh remind myself from god's word knowing that the the idea of this comes from the authority of God's word to keep my heart, to guard my heart, to shepherd my heart. What would be a, a book and chapter that I might turn to? Yes, exactly. Proverbs 4, 23. So I'm, I'm happy this morning with book and chapter. If you're an overachiever, give me the verse too. That's awesome. Um, what about if I want to be reminded about the importance of the body of Christ and how God uses the body of Christ to bring about growth within the body of Christ? Ephesians 4. Yes, very good. Excellent. What's a passage if I wanted to find a succinct explanation of God's revelation both generally through creation and specifically through his word in scripture what's a a book and chapter psalm 19 yes excellent 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 good all right in your um in your folder we're gonna we're gonna look a little bit at the the uh resources under that tab so your outline should have gone in front of the resources tab and behind what was already in your book. So the outline from last week, it should go behind that, but in front of the resources tab. Are we all on the same page there or, or working towards that? I'll wait until I hear clipping cease. Oh, good. There's, um, hey Carly, there's actually uh, an outline for today that needs to be added to that. And then this blue fold, trifold. Okay, on the, everybody got their outline in? 
working towards that. Close enough. Okay, turn to the laminated page in your resources. Everybody with me there? Laminated page on your resources page. Okay, if you look at the top of that page, it says Old Testament dates. We want to just picture in our mind a timeline right now, and then we're going to walk through uh, just the chronology of the Old Testament um, from key events. But just picture a, a timeline. You have it there just in dates. But if you look at the top left, it says creation and then roughly 6,000 B.C. So we, we hold to a young earth that God created the earth in six literal days, and he did so about 6,000 years ago. The flood, the best that we can tell, happened 4,000 years ago. So 2,000 years passed from creation, then the flood took place. After the flood, you have Abraham enter the picture roughly 2166 BC. Is everybody with me on that sheet? Can you see that sheet? It's the laminated sheet from your resources page. So it should be on the far right of your notebook. And, um, and if you see that, the, the bold 2166, Abraham enters the picture. And then you've got Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you get all the way down. Joseph is in Egypt, right? And the Israelites join with him in Egypt during the famine. And they end up being taken into slavery. They grow exponentially, go from something like 70 to 2 million in a matter of 400 years. I mean, just exponential growth numerically as a people. And then in 1446, you have the Exodus. God brings them out of Egypt. They wander for 40 years. They enter the promised land, and then they have this period with the judges. And that's roughly 1380 to 1345 B.C. In, in 1043, Saul is appointed king. Saul is the first king of Israel. They had judges prior to that. They were what would be called a theocracy where God was ruling them. And they said, we want a king. And they wanted a king like every other nation had a king. And so they appointed, the Israelites appointed Saul. God brought David and then Solomon. And then at the end of Solomon's reign in 931 B.C., we have the divided. I was like, what is that noise? It's a siren. At first I thought it was a kid crying. Did anybody else? Okay. Maybe my kids are just super weird. They cry like, no, I'm sorry. Um, so you have the division of the kingdom at the end of Solomon's reign. Okay, at that point you have the northern tribes and then the southern two tribes. So northern ten tribes make up Israel at the division of the kingdom. And the southern two tribes are Judah and what other tribe? Anybody remember? Benjamin. So Judah and Benjamin. And then the northern tribes consist of whom? All the rest. You can learn us. I can teach you a song. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, also Asher, Ishakar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. These are the sons. Anyway, homeschool parents, it sticks. If you teach your kids these things when they're little, it sticks. So um, you've got the northern tribes, the southern tribes. In, in 722, you get the Assyrian captivity. Now, the Assyrian captivity was where the Assyrians took over which? The northern tribes of Israel or the southern tribes of Judah? It was the northern tribes of Israel. 
So the northern tribes of Israel are taken into captivity captivity in 722 BC, and that's the end. There's not a a, a remnant that re-enters the land yet. There will be a day coming where God will restore uh, Israel completely the from from all the tribes back into the land. But at this point, Israel, the northern tribes are still dispersed, still scattered. They're not back in in to the land that did not take place. Babel, Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonian captivity s- took place in three phases. The first phase was in 605 BC. Okay, and that's where we see Daniel take place, um, and that consists of the years that they're in captivity. Phase two, Ezekiel. Phase three, Jeremiah. And you can see the dates there. And then Judah actually returns to the land out of their captivity. And we see those phases as well, the return in 536, 457, and 445. Okay, now, turn your page over, and you should see this key events of the Old Testament. This is a pictorial graph. I like pictures. It's helpful. I'm a visual person. And so this is super helpful. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through this briefly, and we're going to we're going to repeat this, okay? So when we're together in the future, we're going to go through this together and practice this together. But just follow along with me at the top left where it says creation. Do you guys see that? So we have creation. God creates. That's Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, he acted. Genesis 3, we have the fall. Sin enters the world. That escalates. That sinful nature is, is passed on. And we get to the point where God's assessment of mankind is that there is evil, only evil in the heart of man continually. And so we have God's judgment on the earth through a flood. God preserves mankind through the, the um, Noahic, Noahic family. So Noah's family preserves the, the, the human race. And God tells them after the flood to disperse and inhabit the earth. And what did they do? They all joined together and sought to make a name for themselves and built the Tower of Babel. So what did God do? He dispersed them. He confounded their languages and, d- and forced them to do what they refused to do from his instruction. However, God sought out a man, Abraham, and made a promise to that man that through that one man, he would make a nation and create a nation that would bless all other nations. Now, in order for a people to be considered a nation— They need three things, three ingredients, a people, a constitution, and a land. So what did God do? He brought about through his divine providence the Israelites' captivity in Egypt. During that time, they grew exponentially to two million people. God brought them out of that captivity through a series of plagues, and that began the Exodus in 1446 BC, where God brought about ten plagues. Right now, I'm at the lightning bolt with the ten on it. Is everybody with me? Perfect. So God brings the Israelites out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they're about 2 million, and they are a people. They have that first ingredient towards becoming a nation. And God leads them out and leads them to Mount Sinai, where he gives Moses the law. This law is God's instruction for how they are to conduct themselves as a people under God's rule. They're in a theocracy, and now they have their constitution. So they have their people and they have their constitution. However, they disobey God and they make a graven image, uh, a a cow beast out of gold, all the gold of the people, while Moses is actually receiving this instruction from God. And they call it Yahweh. 
they make a graven image of of God, which was forbidden. They were told not to do that. And so God punishes them and causes them to delay and to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. At that point, they cross the Jordan. They're instructed to divide and conquer the generation of those that rebelled against God at Sinai um, pass away and they bring the next generation minus Joshua and Caleb into in addition Joshua and Caleb into the promised land and God's instruction is to divide and conquer and so they do they go in and they divide and they conquer several nations and now they have their land and they are officially a, a nation the nation of Israel as they have their people they have their constitution and now they have land that they're inhabiting God tells them to occupy that land fully however they don't they don't occupy it fully they don't drive out all of the inhabitants of the land they make exceptions and they uh, esteem their wisdom over God's and they get into these these cycles of failure during the times of the judges where they sit in they're brought into servitude then they present supplication then they find salvation from the Lord to their servitude and then there's a time of silence and then repeat and if you go through the book of judges that's what you find you can find a judge and the people sin and they're brought into servitude and then they pray and then and then God brings them out and then there's silence and then repeat it gets to the point where there's total corruption especially among the priests priestly um, group the priesthood Eli and his sons are just in total corruption there's no king no regard for the ark capital city has been taken over no priesthood as Eli dies no land the Philistines have taken over and they're rejecting God's rule they cry out for a king and so what do they want they want a king with the wrong heart they want a king like all the other nations so they pick Saul who's ahead above the rest he's ruddy handsome strong good fighter he but Paul, uh, Saul had no regard for the ark he was disobedient to God disregarded God's instruction for the nation so what did God do he raised up a king of his liking one after his own heart the first act that David did in his kinghood was he went and got the ark found it he was obedient to God even in his failures he had a heart after God's own heart sought to please the Lord his son Solomon had a divided heart there were some highlights for Solomon things that he did well and there were definitely things that he did poorly during his rule God brought about peace prosperity and additional land However, God gave Solomon specific instruction. Do not acquire for yourself horses, wives, and money. Now, why? Why the prohibition towards these things? And why would Solomon be drawn towards these things? Well, horses were like your military. So to have a, a huge amount of horses was like having a huge arsenal of tanks. That was what made your army strong. Money. Why not have money? Well, money created esteem and prestige and gave you resources to be able to buy and buy things and make alliances and give gifts and and so uh, there was a prohibition after going severely after money how about women why why not wives why should the king avoid having many wives well a, a number of reasons one is the foreign women would turn his heart away towards other gods but the, the primary reason for the king, Solomon, not to go after multiple wives was because in this day, the way that you made alliances and brought about peace with other nations was through uh, intermarriage among nations. So one nation, Solomon, marrying a wife of a foreign nation 
was a means of creating alliances and God's people were to be set apart. They were to be holy. They were to be distinct. And so God told him not to go after these things. And Solomon actually went after all of those things. The result, God's judgment again comes about. There's a split of the kingdom. As I mentioned before, you have Israel with 10 tribes. Israel had no good kings after Solomon. And they're taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC, and that's the end of what we see up to this point for the northern tribes of Israel. Judah, however, had some good kings, but God still brought his judgment because of the rebellion of the people of, of Judah on, on the nation in 605 through the Babylonian captivity. However, God's promise was that there would be a future. God is in control of these things, even the captivity and the judgment that was being brought about. He's not finished with his people. There will be an atonement to come for their sin, and there will be a future kingdom that God will establish. Why exile? Why did God bring them into exile? Why that kind of judgment in Babylon? Well, first of all, Babylon was a very, very, very idolistic uh, nation. They had idols everywhere. It was disgusting, and in fact, Israel's uh, being so oversaturated with this idolatry that was rampant in Babylon was a means of God curing them of their idolatry. God also gave them a respect for the law, and he brought to them hope in a Messiah, and, and Daniel is actually a wonderful prophetic book that points to the future that it, God has for Israel through a coming Messiah and a future for the nation. At this point in exile, God starts to bring them back. There was no temple at that point. It, it did not have the former glory. The people needed to be purified, and they needed to be brought back into the land. So why did they need to return for these things? To prepare for the coming king, for the Messiah who is to come. And so God brings them back into the land. Ezra focuses on what? Rebuilding what? Do you remember? Ezra was the temple. And Nehemiah was the walls. And the way I remember that is temple is short and Ezra is short. The walls are long <laughs> and Nehemiah is a longer name. So if you can remember Ezra, okay, I'm, I, I don't have a great memory, so I have to make silly associations. That's how I remember. Nehemiah, walls, Ezra, temple. So they're brought back in in preparation for Christ when he will come secure a new program uh, a future for Israel and establish the church, the body of Christ. And, uh, and that's our key events of the Old Testament. All right, who wants to come up and give it a try? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Maybe in the future. We're going to move on. Any questions about any of that? If it feels like drinking through a fire hose, that's why we're going to do it again. But it's really helpful. You'll find it incredibly helpful as you navigate your Old Testament and start to see some of these events, knowing how it fits in within the big picture and timeline of what's taking place. Okay, go ahead and turn in your notes to the Word of God Bibliology section. And we ended at inspiration last time. And so we're going to pick up on inerrancy. So we're going to pick up on inerrancy. You should have the part in your outline from our, our first session that says the word of God, bibliology, and then in blue at the top it says history of the Bible. And then you have inspiration and then inerrancy.
And before I talk about inerrancy, just want to review a little bit of what we talked about last time in re regards to the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. If you remember, we, we talked about the reality that what you believe about the Word of God is absolutely fundamental to the Christian life, to the Christian walk. It's an essential part of Christianity because the Bible, God's Word, is the exclusive true source for all Christian truth. If we want to have the most concrete, specific revelation from God for how we are to live, for who God is, how we're to conduct ourselves, what God's motivation and intention and even the future for his people is, we find that in scripture. All of Christian doctrine, all theology, practices of the Christian faith, they're founded and based upon scripture. In fact, nothing will have a greater practical impact on your beliefs, and, and really I should say nothing should have a greater practical impact on your beliefs and on how you function in your Christian life than the Word of God. And, and particularly when I say the Word of God, I mean your Bible. Therefore, what you believe, what I believe, what we believe about Scripture is absolutely crucial because there's a domino effect, either for good or bad, for your life and for your faith based on what you believe about the Word of God. So, last time we talked about the history of the Bible a little bit. We addressed inspiration. What is inspiration? It's that God superintended, this is the quote in your outline, God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. And we talked about how for God to inspire the original documents means that they are from God. This is God-breathed. And yet God used human means to do this. So there is a human little a author that we find in our Bibles. And behind every little a author is the large capital A author, God himself. So this is God's word for us to have. God's means of communicating specific, specifically truths about himself to us. And then next we're going to talk about inerrancy. Now is, is everybody on their on the right page with me on their outline? Excellent. Inerrancy. What is inerrancy? I have the quote there for you from Grudem. The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It's without error. Scripture in the original manuscripts is without error. Now, how many times have you heard somebody say that the Bible contains errors or that the Bible contradicts itself. I think we've all heard that argument from those who would oppose biblical Christianity. And this is extremely consequential because if some of Scripture cannot be trusted, how do we know what to trust? If some of Scripture has errors, how do we discern which ones have errors and which doesn't? And this will lead into what we're going to talk about in just a few moments, the authority of Scripture that it has. Because if we conclude that Scripture has errors, all of a sudden Scripture cannot be the ultimate authority. There has to be something else that we have to dictate to us how to discern a greater authority than Bible it, the Bible itself or God himself to tell us what has error and what doesn't. If some of Scripture cannot be trusted, how do we know what to trust? God's very character and nature is at stake in this. Why? Because he says his word is without error. 
The Bible and its original copies were without error. Thus, when properly interpreted, they do not affirm anything that is untrue or contrary to fact. A, a closely related term to this is infallible, that the, the scriptures never fail. The scripture is true and reliable in all the issues that scripture addresses. Now, not everything that is true in the universe or about God is found in scripture. There are some things, Deuteronomy 29 tells us, that belong to the Lord, secret things that belong to the Lord. But everything that the Bible testifies to is true. Now, every book of the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was in their original autographs without error as a result of divine inspiration. However, none of those original manuscripts, none of those original autographs are in existence today. And what we find excuse me, what we find is that copies were made and copies of copies and thousands of manuscripts were passed down over the centuries. And copies are actually subject to errors due to the fallible human involvement. While God did not extend the miracle of inspiration to the copying and translation process, God did providentially preserve copies and translations to the extent that they accurately reproduce the content of the original documents. So what does all that mean? God did not have every person who copied scripture or any of the people who copied scripture be divinely inspired in the same manner as the original authors. However, in God's providence, he allowed and caused copies to be made to the degree that we can have complete confidence that what we have in our translations accurately reflect the original documents. Um, God did not tell us specifically in the Bible why he did this. However, I've heard it, I've heard it theorized that the reason or one of the reasons God did this was because if we had original perfect documents, what might we be tempted to do? Worship the documents as opposed to worshiping God. Now, that's not from the authority of Scripture. God doesn't tell us that he did it for that purpose. But I know the temptation of my own heart. And even if you look at the early Roman, church, or Roman Catholic Church, what did they do time and time again? They set up for themselves relics, and they worshiped those things over God. So I think it's reasonable to see that we, we, were, we, we were protected from the at least temptation to worship those original documents by not having them. I don't know wholly if that was God's intention, but what I do know is that we do have God's word and we have copies that have been uh, made at mind-blowing reliability rates. If you look at the amount of manuscripts and copies in the Bible versus any other writing, any other writing in the same time, it is just completely unbalanced how many more copies and how, how well things have been preserved. And this really gets into what's called textual criticism, which deals with the manuscripts. And the, the main point is that while only the original manuscripts were inerrant, how God has providentially preserved scripture gives us a sweet, wonderful confidence that the copying process that was superintended by God has preserved the doctrine of inerrancy in that the translations can still be called the word of God. We should and can call this God's word. As long as our translations accurately reflect the content of the original 
autographs, and we can have great confidence in this. I also want to point out that while some people make the argument that the Bible has been copied over and over again and translated and translated, some people view that as a defense or an argument against inerrancy or against the reliability of the Bible as if here was the original manuscripts. They were copied. They're lost. This copy was copied. This was lost. This copy was copied. This was lost. And so on. As if we lost every previous copy to the copies that we have today. That's not how textual criticism works. That's not how the manuscripts work. We have manuscripts dating back all the way, I can't remember what the most recent was. I think it's 130 AD. It might be actually 90 AD. Um, and there's, there's fragments of manuscripts that date all the way back to then. And then as it gets a little farther away, it's just exponential how many copies we have of manuscripts in the third or uh, fourth century, fifth century, and so on. So it's not like it's been copied, and we, we don't have anything reliable to know what those thousands of copies before this copy looked like. We actually have those copies in large part, and it testifies to the consistency and reliability of Scripture. In summary, John MacArthur says it this way. He says, the Bible is inerrant and infallible, uh, the Bible is inerrant. It, excuse me. Let me I'm going to start over because I kept messing that up. So it's it's irrecoverable. We're going to start from the beginning. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God and is the result of divine inspiration, which produced divinely authoritative and factual accounts that are truthful in what they record. This doctrine applies directly to the original autographs and indirectly which is what we've been talking about to the texts and translations of today. Okay, next you can turn to the next page. Actually, I think in, in our outline I knew it's different than the men's outline because I knew there was no way I was going to get to it last time. The next outline has authority, and this actually might mess up three of you who got the men's outlines um, when you got here early. But it should, you might just need to write in authority, and that'll be the next part. So if you turn to overview Word of God, or I'm sorry, Word of God Part 2, the new man worksheet. Oh, she didn't put it in this one either, so you guys just miss out. We're going to talk about authority. Or maybe, no, I have the guys one. I didn't grab the girls insert. What does your outline say? What is it? Hermeneutics, everybody? Okay, then I have the same one. Before we jump into hermeneutics, we're going to talk about authority. So wherever in your book you want to write about authority, you have the freedom to do so. And I'll try to stick to my ex my goals for what I get through so that this doesn't happen next time. Does everybody know where they want to take notes on authority? How much am I going to say? <laughs> like this much. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what I'm going to say, Anne. <laughs> I probably need to go quick because we still have a lot of ground to cover. So probably less than I would have if I didn't have this whole... 
outline issue. Okay, authority. The issue of authority is summed up this way. How does one become convinced that the Bible really is the word of God? How do you know that scripture has authority over your life? How do you know that you can submit your life to scripture as authoritative as we've been talking about? And as Christians, we believe that the ultimate authority resides with God and with God alone. And no one gave God this authority. He didn't inherit it. He didn't get it by way of vote uh, or election. God's authority exists as he is the creator of all things and the possessor of all things. He's the sovereign one holding all power. Now, some have looked to rational evidences to prove the authority of Scripture. Archaeological evidences, historical references to people and places and events. These kind of verifiable, tangible evidences or fulfillment of prophecies would also fall into this category. Also, some appeal to church authority, which looks to declarations of councils and early church fathers as the the proof or the demonstration of the authority of scripture. It's authoritative because the church father said so, or it's authoritative because of this, this decree or this creed that the early church embraced says so. Therefore, we can have confidence because they said it was. There's also the view of looking to existential impact. What's existential impact? This is the, hey, look at how my life has been affected Look at how my life has been impacted, and because I can see direct change in my life, it must be true. This is uh, oversimplification, but ultimately the problem with these explanations is that they are all subjective. The individual determines whether the Bible is true and from God based off of their evaluation standards, whatever those standards may be. And the problem with this is that when you say this is authoritative because my assessment is that it is, who's assumed the authority? That person, the one making the declaration that it's authoritative. Each one of us is ultimately inadequate as the primary proof or determiner that Scripture is authoritative. The proof must actually be the testimony of Scripture itself. Whatever the highest degree of authority is can be trusted as such because that highest level of authority declares it as such. If something external from the highest authority declares it the authority, that one who declares it as authoritative has now risen above in authority, the declared thing of authority. Do you understand that? That's why it's circular. It's a, it's a circular, a subjective kind of argument. Scripture is not silent regarding God's authority. God God's titles demonstrate his authority as the creator. He's the almighty. His character attests to this as the eternal and immortal, immortal and only God. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. That means he knows all things. He possesses unsearchable wisdom. And this authority is communicated to mankind through God's word. And it is true. God is the ultimate authority. In all things, he's the one alone who is qualified to attest to Scripture's divine authority. And this is what God does through the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And this is why when you're a believer, when God saves you, when you are given spiritual life, what takes place is what Paul calls, calls uh, uh, that you become spiritually appraised. And the carnal man 
can't discern the things of the spirit. The carnal man can't understand the things relating to God. But those who have been saved by the grace of God now are able to see. They have what's called the gift of illumination. They can see and understand, and they're granted faith to believe and, and hold fast to the reality of God's authority. Scripture doesn't ever seek to prove itself to man. It doesn't seek to give evidences. Hey, this is God's word, and here's why. It, it presupposes its authority as it is God's word to man. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, it says this, in the beginning, God created. And it just speaks truth with the authority that it possesses. It's not grasping for authority. It's not trying to prove to us that it's authoritative. It exerts its authority from the very get-go and through the rest of Scripture. And it's, it never fails. The fact that it's inerrant and inspired just puts on display as you read the truth of God's word time and time again the supreme wisdom and revelation that it is to mankind from God himself. So God's word is truth as truth simply presents it and expects the reader to accept it as such. Now surely many evidences demonstrate this reality, right? We're not saying that the evidences aren't true or that they don't confirm what is true about scripture. You can look at evidences and time after time this takes place where they'll say these people are uh, existed in this land and scientists and archaeologists will say no they never existed there we, we don't see any remnants of that and then a few years pass and they go uh, actually we found some remnants they did live here. they did live here these people that happens time and time again and the biggest objection to the reliability of scripture among archaeologists secular ar archaeologists is usually almost exclusively founded on the absence of evidences so they're not looking to, th they're, they're not finding things that are contrary to what bi the Bible testifies to. What they'll look at is they'll say, well, the Bible said this, and we don't see evidence of that. And the reality is, is that nowhere else in scientific research or archaeological research would you conclude that the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. It's just a foolish way to conduct yourself that, hey, we couldn't find it, therefore this is true. No, you couldn't find it because you haven't looked hard enough. Or you haven't found it yet. Keep working towards it. So we see that scripture proves itself true and true. But us determining that or us watching it unfold, us watching the impact that scripture has on our life or us watching prophecies be fulfilled throughout the history of mankind or watching things be discovered. Those aren't the proof that gives the Bible its authority. Those demonstrate the authority that scripture possesses. Scripture is true, and we can trust that. And so we submit ourselves to God's word as authoritative, believing it. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Okay. Any questions on that? Yes. Which scripture or which? Yep. Good, good question. So um, here's the reality. The fact that God's word is authoritative, authoritative because God said so, that is also a circular argument. Every argument is circular. 
okay? Everybody comes with presuppositions. So if somebody says, well, what are the evidences that you can trust Scripture when Scripture says it's God's word? Because Scripture says it's God's word. That's actually the answer. But a spiritually depraved person, somebody who can't, somebody who's in their sin and can't see the things of the Lord, what does God say in Scripture is the thing that they need most to be able to see clearly? The, the gospel. So, so when you're working with an unbeliever, every situation is going to have its own nuance. Whatever you can do to get to the gospel, right, Romans 1, 16, it is the power unto salvation. What a person, what an unbeliever needs most is not first and foremost to believe that God's word is inerrant. What they need is to recognize that they're a sinner and they need a savior and they need to repent and turn from their sins. So my, my strategy or how I seek to lead those conversations or navigate those conversations is to get to the gospel as quickly as possible. Now, following human logic to show the air of it, to show the foolishness of man's thinking is helpful to maybe at times walk with them down those paths of thinking to show them the dead end of the foolishness. But I don't want to get caught up walking down that perpetually and get in a peripheral argument about certain manuscripts and dates and different things like that. They're not going to believe that ultimately that scripture is scripture because of one confirmation. Their, their sinful heart that wants to suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness, the moment you prove one evidence against the Bible to be false, that it's actually true, what are they going to do? They've got a hundred more manufactured evidences as to why the Bible is also not trustworthy, even if you show them one. So that's where being peaceable, patient, listening, hear their concerns, hear their questions, explain the truths, but then try to pivot to the gospel as much as possible. And what scripture actually says about the gospel is uh, how I would recommend going. Did that get to your question or were you asking something else? Okay. I feel like I may not have touched exactly on what you were getting at though. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you're right, but I don't want to take up more time. That's very gracious. Okay. All right. We're going to transition to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is this. It is the study of the process and rules of Bible interpretation. The study of the process and rules of Bible interpretation. What do we mean by that? How do we read our Bibles? There's lots of different methods that people apply when thinking about reading their Bibles. And this is on the packet that you should have received today. Is everybody with me on the outline? Excellent. So how do you read your Bible? Someone to employ this kind of what it means to me spiritualized model uh, of reading. I read the Bible and just kind of however I feel after whatever I feel God is saying, that's what he's saying to me. Some view it through the lens of an allegory. All of scripture or selective parts of scripture are allegorical. And what that means is it's saying one thing, but it's really just depicting kind of the spiritualized issue on everything that it's referring to. What we hold to is this. It's the literal grammatical hermeneutical, or I'm sorry, literal grammatical historical 
hermeneutic, literal, grammatical, historical. What that means is that we believe that words have meanings and what God inspired and chose to reveal to mankind, he did so meaning to communicate specific truth using normal grammar in a historical context. A human author speaking to audiences of that day. And so you take all of those things into account in your hermeneutic and your understanding of how you're reading and you look at who was writing, to whom was he writing, what was going on that day and age, what was the culture and different things, and you understand those things, you seek to understand those things, and then you look at what were the words used, and what did they mean, and how would they have been understood, and and then what God's word says is, is what he means, that when God wrote, there was one right meaning, one right meaning of what he was communicating. Now, there absolutely can be a multitude of implications or applications. Sometimes people want to run really quickly to all of the applications and confound that with what the meaning is. And what we want to do is we want to labor diligently. We want to work hard to understand God's word so that we identify what was the meaning? What did God mean when he wrote? And we don't believe that it's some sort of secret, undiscoverable thing that he wrote in a coded manner. No, we actually believe that God was clear, and that moves into our next point, my heart and my Bible. God was clear when he wrote. He wrote to be understood. We see that Revelation 1-3. He wanted, he wants his people to meditate on his word, to, to know it and to meditate it. We know that from Psalm 1-2. He wants his commands obeyed and taught. We see that in Psalm 119.30. He didn't write with this, with this uh, decoder ring that we have to have some secret way to uncover what he really me meant behind what he was writing. No, God's word is, is clear. He wrote to be understood. Now, the reality that God's word is clear does not equal God's word is always easy to understand. We live 2,000 years later, 3,500 3, years later than some of the Bible and language differences. We have to labor. We have to work hard, but not because God was unclear or wrote to not be understood. We also believe that God's word is necessary. We need the truth that's found in scripture. We need to know it. Wayne Grudem says this, the necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. One can know that God exists, can know things about his character and his moral law through creation, but they cannot know the path to salvation. They cannot know God's will for the believer except through scripture. It's necessary, and we're called to crave the word of God in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. We're called to seek purity through keeping God's word in Psalm 119, verse 9. And then lastly, we see that God's word is sufficient. And John MacArthur says this, All truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. 
So when we think about scripture, we need to think through some just basic questions. Where do we go for help? When we think about the sufficiency and the necessity of God's scripture and its authority for our life, when we're facing difficulties in life, hardships, decisions, struggles, where do we turn for help? How desperate are we for God's truth? When you're at your wit's end and you just need some clarity, what do you run to? We should run to scripture. All right, we're, this is an overview. We're going to cycle through a lot of these things in the coming months. And so we'll revisit some of these things. Um, any questions, though, so far? All right, go ahead and turn to the next page. Now, before I jump into the transformation of man, and just for expectations, we're going to go until about 8.05 this morning on this part, and then we'll split into our groups for discussion time. And um, I just want to point out a couple things. First of all, uh, this is a new curriculum for us. EQ is, is new. We're a new church, and we're putting this together for the first time as you receive your outlines when you walk in because we haven't done these things before. We're, we're making it on the fly. I've got a roadmap. It's kind of like a guideline. Um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, but pretty much all of this information is recycled from things like Build from Grace Bible Church, The Trust from Grace Bible Church, Grace and Granite from Grace Emmanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida. Um, I'm using a number of different commentaries and systematic theologies. And uh, what we're planning to do is at the end of every semester, we're going to hand out a works cited page to put in the back of your folder that'll just let you know the resources that have been drawn from. But we just want to have clarity. If you hear something that seems wise or consistent with scripture or good, I didn't make it up. I stole everything. <laughs> so I'm claiming no credit for this material. And if you if you hear something really good, and want to know which one it was drawn from, I can try to point you in that direction. Um, and uh, But but we're, we want to give credit, but we're just putting that together as we go. So just for expectations so that you know, and that'll be coming. But in the meantime, if you have any questions, hey, where did you, where can I get more information on this? Or that was really helpful. Where can I read more about that? Just let me know, and I'd be happy to, to point you in, in the direction of, uh, of where I got it. Okay, we've been at like a 20,000 foot overview. We're going to ascend even higher, okay? We're going to go up to about 40,000 feet. We're going to talk about shepherding our heart. We're going we're gonna to build on what we talked about last time in shepherding our heart. And in order to shepherd our heart well, we need to understand what Scripture says about us in relation to God. And this pamphlet summarizes, and it's probably the most useful tool on this topic that I've, that I've seen, that summarizes who we were apart from Christ, who we are now in Christ, and who we will be in glory with Christ. Okay, so you can both open up the pamphlet if you'd like, and on your outline, be in discipline, one, the heart, God's transformation of man. And we are going to fly through three different stages brought about by primarily two separate events. Okay, three stages of man that's brought about by two separate events. The first position or the stage or state of man is what we see on the far left top side where you see the unregenerate man. You should see that in your pamphlet. 
and you can also see that in your outline where we see the unregenerate man. This man is considered unmixed. They're in an unmixed condition without Christ. What does it mean to be in an unmixed condition? That means if you look at the key descriptions of this old condition, you can see that kind of on the blue on the right side under unregenerate man in the bold key descriptions of this old condition. This man is unmixed, unable not to sin. This man is unable to please God. This person is dominated by and enslaved to sin. Sin rules all faculties, thoughts, emotions, motives. This person is unable to shepherd their heart away from sin into God. And this person is under God's wrath and judgment. This is what we would call total depravity. Total depravity. And every human being is born into this. We are unmixed, only able to sin against God. Now, it's important to make this distinction. When we talk about unable to sin or unable to do good or, or something along those lines, what we mean is in relation to God. We're unable to please God through our thoughts, our actions, our deeds, our disposition. All of those things are in a sinful disposition towards God. Why? Because we're not submitting to him in anything. Can a depraved, unmixed person contribute positive things to society or have acts that are perceived as positive or good or benefit others? Absolutely. Absolutely. Depraved people do things that benefit others or society frequently. And they do things that are really bad towards society frequently. But every so-called good thing that they do to benefit others is done with the wrong heart. And so none of it pleases God because they're not submitted to God. They're not doing good things. Well, good things because they love God and want to glorify him there's idolatry in their heart there's self-love and that's true for all of us apart from Christ that unregenerate man is in an unmixed condition characterized by all the things you see there this is how scripture and remember we talked about scripture being authoritative this is what God's assessment is and so it's not debatable well is man really that bad can they do some good things? Not before the Lord. That's God's declaration. God says this, mankind prior to salvation is dead in sins. They walk in sins. They live in the lusts of their flesh. They're children of wrath. There's no hope. They walk in the domain of darkness. They're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lusts and pleasures, hateful, hate others, alienated from God, hostile towards God, engaged in evil deeds. And you can just read all down that list. That's what scripture testifies to regarding the unregenerate man, unsaved, unreborn, regeneration to be made new, to be reborn, regenerated. The unregenerate man is in a sinful condition. This person is without Christ, without Jesus. Their inner man is sinful and their members only do what is sinful to the Lord. But then in that sinful state, an event happens. And so that was the first state of mankind when they're born, but then an event happens. And that is a regeneration event. Do you see that in the tan underneath regenerate man on your pamphlet? 
or on page three of your outline for today, they're kind of shadowed page numbers on the bottom right, the regeneration event. So if you're looking at your outline, you're on page three of today's outline, the regeneration event is the top page. If you're looking on your pamphlet, it's on the bottom left of the first or of the left side of your pamphlet. Anybody confused on where we are? All right, you guys are troops, Tro troopers. Okay, regeneration event. This is where God declares somebody righteous. And this is accomplished by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an event, the gospel, where one is adopted. They're saved through the work of Christ, through propitiation, they are paid for. A satisfactory payment is made on their behalf. And what we find in the gospel is, is a wonderful term called penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty has been substituted through another. Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus was the substitute and atoned for, satisfied, paid for the sin that we committed. That sinful state, that unmixed, unregenerate person that we once were deserved the wrath of God, rightly so. And Jesus died as the substitute, taking that wrath, atoning for our sins, paying for our sins, so that we might be reconciled to God, no longer under the condemnation that we deserve for our sinfulness against God. This comes about through repentance and faith which is a gift from God, that we would have that. And so you repent of your sinful disposition and state before God, and you confess the fact that you need Christ. You submit to him in faith as your Lord and Savior, and God accomplishes that regeneration work that's appropriated through those things in the believer's life. This person has a new birth or a new life. They're made a new creation, and they actually have what's called positional sanctification. You can see under the regeneration event components, one of the subpoints is positional sanctification. There's something called practical sanctification where we're made holy over time, more and more progressively so. There's also practical or positional, uh, I'm sorry, positional sanctification, which is where we are set apart. So the word sanctify comes from holy. It's a similar word in the Greek. It's the same word, actually. And so what happens is it's a form of that word that means to make holy. And so to be sanctified, there's two realities. Usually we think of it in the sense of you're practically made more holy over time. There's also times when scripture just says, hey, you were sanctified. It took place. You were set apart. And you're being made set apart more and more over time. You're justified. That means you're declared righteous. You're, you're given Christ's righteousness. We are not made perfectly holy at the moment of salvation, but we're viewed as such before God because of Christ's righteousness that's credited to our account, imputation. We have union with Christ. Our sin is removed. The punishment and judgment for our sin has been taken away. There's been propitiation where God's wrath is satisfied. We're redeemed through Jesus' blood. We're reconciled. We're at peace with God now. Where we were once enemies of God, at enmity with him, now we actually have peace with God. These wonderful realities. Well, when that event, that regeneration event, that's somebody becoming saved. <laughs> that's God doing that work. When that takes place, they enter from that 
first phase or that first description or that first state of an unregenerate man into the middle stage on your worksheet, which is the regenerate man. The regenerate man. And if you turn ahead to page four on your outline, that's where we're working through now. So the regenerate man, this man is in a mixed condition. So before you were unmixed, you were sinful, depraved. Now, and this is where we all are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is where we are. If that regeneration event has taken place for you, you're in this category, the regenerate man. This, this regeneration is accomplished once and for all by God, but in your salvation, you are being renewed day by day through progressive sanctification. And you can see the outline there, how you start as a new creation and there's a, a level of glory that you possess or holiness that you possess. You can glorify God from the moment you become a Christian. You have the capacity now to glorify God. What wonderful news. And as you grow in holiness through progressive sanctification, you become more and more Christ-like. And you can see that illustrated through the greater yellow, glorious coloring on your, on your outline there, on the, on the pamphlet. This mixed condition of man, of the regenerate man, is characterized by unchanging realities accomplished through regeneration. The, all those things about justification and, and imputation and atonement, those are all true, and even adoption. And yet you also have a new, new identity in Christ. You have freedom from slavery to sin. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is taking place in your life. You're able to do good works, and good works as God calls them, things that please the Lord. You have the ability to obey God, and there is still a proneness to sin. Sin still entangles. There are still weights that we struggle against and strive against. We still have to fight our flesh. We still have to demonstrate ongoing repentance as we sin. There still needs to be ongoing faith. And yet we, pro we progress in Christ's likeness. And in the mixed condition, we actually see two complementing, coexisting realities that are beautiful and wonderful. God relentlessly transforms the believer more and more over time into Christ's likeness. God does this work. We're going to see this in a few weeks in Philippians 2. And... The believer is called to diligently pursue holiness. Both of those things coexist. You never should say, hey, God will do his work on me in his perfect time. I'm just going to, I just don't want to focus on the negativity of my sin and turning from that. I'm just going to let God do his thing. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to put our sin to death. He calls us to present our members as, as those things which are to be used for righteousness. Don't live in the old way of old manner of living and the old man and don't live like the unregenerate man what are some key descriptions of this new condition well we're mixed but we're able not to sin we are able to please the lord and there's a fight within us against sin and for christ we're enslaved to god now to righteousness and obedience that's what we're called to do that's how we're called to live and yet there is residual sin we need to shepherd our heart away from that sin and toward God. And yet we're not under God's wrath. We're not under condemnation any longer. What's the next event that takes place? So we saw the first state as an unregenerate man. Then we had an event, the regeneration event. Then we're made the regenerate man. 
where we are in a mixed condition, what's the next event that we have to look forward to? Death, <laughs> which is really departing the land of the dying to go home. If you look at the word death on your outline, kind of on the crease on the right, the right crease, right under that, that's departing the land of the dying to go home. And listen, if you're in Christ, you possess eternal life currently. So this dying is a dying of our external man. It's a dying of this flesh, but our souls never die. There's a disintegration of the inner man from the outer man. There's a separation there. We have a safe journey home. We're unseparated from Jesus, but, we're, uh, but we are separated from this flesh. The believer is still alive. They're often called or referred to as sleeping in Scripture. The, the death of God's saints is precious to God. And it's a gain for the believer, as Paul references in Philippians 1. In this death, in this death event, the mixed condition of the regenerate man transitions into the heavenly man for those that are in Christ. And now we're going to talk about that third state. So we had the first state, unregenerate man. The first event, regeneration. The second state, the regenerate man in a mixed condition. The second event, death, and now the third state, which is the heavenly man. This person is with Christ. They are unmixed once again, but on the opposite side. Where they once were unmixed, only being able to sin, now what each one of us who are in Christ have to look forward to is a day where we will be unmixed, only ever able to please God and do what's right. This one is at home with the Lord. This one resembles Jesus. When you see him, you'll be like him. It's, this person is seen for what they really are in Christ. They're blameless, full of joy, no more death, no more sadness, no curse or, or night in the eternal state. And the key descriptions of this future condition is this, this is an unmixed condition. This person is unable to sin. They're unable to displease God. Doesn't that sound so nice? <laughs> Doesn't it just sound so nice? There's not a fight within perfectly enslaved to God, perfect righteousness in all faculties, no need to shepherd their heart away from sin into God because there's no residual sin that remains. They're enveloped in God's joy. Now, as we wrap this up, there is the, the resurrection or the rapture. And for those who are in Christ and die before the rapture, they are in a glorified state as spirit awaiting their eternal body until Christ returns and upon Christ's return he says that those who are in Christ will rise or those who are dead in Christ will be raised first so just like that all who are in Christ up to the point of the rapture or all of those who are living during the time of the rapture will receive a glorified body okay and if you look in that in that right column down you see rapture these people who are Christians and alive at that time, they bypass death to be with Jesus, and there is an instantaneous physical transformation. And if you look to the right, to the resurrection, under the resurrection, there's an integration of the perfected inner man 
and a glorified body. You're connected. The per- perfect inner man is now is now bonded with a glorified body that is unable to sin. You have a new physical glorified body that is given by God to enjoy God perfectly for the rest of eternity. And the dead in Christ get that first, and then the raptured saints get it immediately following. And that's what the Lord gives us, um, a, a no longer mixed body where we have this flesh that's been mangled and marred and, and is decaying because of sin and its, its effects, being that we will be in a, a unmixed condition as we obtain this glorified body, it will not be deteriorated by sin and the effects of sin because it will have never been touched by sin. And we'll have that glorified body to be able to enjoy God perfectly for all eternity. <coughs> this is what God has done. He has brought us from the unmixed, unregenerate person. He has brought us through regeneration, through his son Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ to be in a mixed condition as a new creation and what we have to look forward to one day is being again in an unmixed condition but only able to please God for all eternity. All right, we're going to end there. I know that's a lot. I would highly recommend many of you have been through Wellspring even multiple times and have heard longer lessons on this. Um, I encourage you to, to refresh yourself with these passages and these truths. Don't take our word for it. And if this is new to you, we don't have specific homework for EQ, but it would, it would behoove you to just take time over the coming days and weeks and just go through all of these passages and just look at what God's word has to say about all of these wonderful, glorious realities. All right, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your wondrous work in the gospel. Thank, thank you for your amazing grace that you would save us. And we have gone through this pamphlet and these truths so quickly this morning. What I pray that we wouldn't miss is that our, that our hearts wouldn't just be sobered yet again by your miraculous grace and mercy and love to, to actually pull us out of that unmixed, rebellious condition and to give us such a gift to salvation that we have, even in this mixed condition, the ability to please you and glorify you and serve you, and we have to look forward to eternity with you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be truly captivated by these wonderful, beautiful things about you. I pray that it would impact how we care for our hearts, the hope that we have in our pursuit of holiness, the comfort that we find in our failures, and Lord, our love and response to you in light of your love and care for us. I pray that it would be deep and rich. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.